You are listening to National Security Law Today. I'm Elisa Poteet, and welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're about to continue our series on Ukraine and our discussion about the war crimes that are occurring there at the hands, mostly, of Russia. We're going to start talking to people who have been boots on the ground in Ukraine during the conflict. And we may not do this linearly with one person one week and then have another episode the next week. But over the next few months, we will make sure that we present to you people who have been there and the legal challenges that they face. So we wanted to talk to you just a little bit today about what are some of the challenges right now for Ukraine in prosecuting the war crimes that are occurring there. As you know, the city of Bucha was occupied for a long period of time. It was bombed and shelled, mostly civilian targets, and thousands of people were killed. Many were sexually abused and others were murdered during that occupation. Children were also abducted. And there have been videos that purported to show acts of abject torture occurring at the hands of Russian soldiers. Ukrainian prosecutors have opened more than 80,000 war crimes cases since Russia invaded, according to Andre Kostin, who is the country's prosecutor general. But there are some problems for him. One of them has to do with how quickly crimes have to be prosecuted under Ukrainian law. Another problem for the Ukrainians is that these trials are occurring in absentia, meaning there is no defendant present in the courtroom to hear what is being said. And the system is operated very differently than the one you see in the United States, where there is a right to confront and cross-examine witnesses and an understanding of how the process will occur in a jury of your peers. This is not the case everywhere, and it is not the case right now in Ukraine. Under Article 438 of Ukraine's criminal code deals with something called just generally violations of law and customs of war. That provision is just like anything you would find in the United States criminal court, except that under Ukrainian law, cases have to actually be brought within just days of learning about the information. And it would be hard for anybody listening to this podcast to imagine a situation in which United States prosecutors would go to trial or really start presenting their evidence on a complex case immediately. It just wouldn't happen. They wouldn't be prepared. They wouldn't be ready to go. And time is built in. Another problem that is faced right now has to do with how many organizations are coming in to help in Ukraine. At this point, there are hundreds of outside organizations attempting to help with investigations, provide resources in the form of computer storage and guidance on how to investigate crimes. But apparently those efforts are not being coordinated by one organization at the top. It's a lot of good resources, a lot of good intent, but it could be too much. And there is to a degree a lack of coordination that's occurring. Ukraine doesn't have a history of what happens in the United States, which is called, you know, going to the low hanging fruit and then working your way up until you get to the person who is the leader in any organization, which in this case would be the commanders within the Russian military who directed some of these occupations and civilian targeting and so on. So this is going to be something that Ukraine will have to learn. 
And it's going to take some time, just like it did with the Rwandan war court and the Bosnian court before that. So over the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at how Ukraine is functioning right now to enforce its own laws, what the likelihood is of there being a special tribunal just to deal with the war crimes occurring in Ukraine, and how the NGOs can be better coordinated Those are the non-governmental organizations that are attempting to help Ukraine right now as it investigates war crimes, how those can be better coordinated through one organization that can pull resources together. One thing to note is that the situation in Ukraine is distinct from what happened with the Nuremberg war crimes trials. In that situation, Germany was at some point a defeated nation. And as a defeated nation, Nuremberg formed, and it was basically imposed on Germany, more or less part of, I guess you could say, a condition for what would later be the rebuilding of Germany by multiple nations and the Marshall Plan. In this situation, there is no conquered nation to take over. Russia is still the aggressor. The war is ongoing. It hasn't ended. So the dynamic is not the same. Now, recent publications, including The Economist, have talked about how this is going to have to be a long game, how those interested in seeing justice are going to have to understand that we're playing the long game. We need to think long term. Now, this may be cold comfort to the people of Ukraine. It may be cold comfort to many Americans who are going over there to observe what is occurring and assist. And so we will be bringing you some information on this over the coming weeks so that you can better understand what's being faced. So tonight we're going to talk to a friend of the cast, Yevgeny Eugene Yev Vindman, who is a U.S. retired now, U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel. He was also the Deputy Legal Advisor at the White House National Security Council, and he's done like dozens of other things. We'll hyperlink his bio in the notes. And the reason we wanted to talk to him tonight is twofold. One, he is Ukrainian by birth, although he is an American. And two, he's been in and out of Ukraine. So, hey, yeah, good to see you again. Great to be here, Alyssa. And just one thing I would say, uh, I was a colonel on active duty. So that's how you can tell my twin brother, Alex and I apart. He's the lieutenant colonel. I'm the colonel. All right. That's, that sounded like a, a bit of a bash, a slam, but you know, you're twins. So I guess you get to do that. I guess you have some shared DNA or something that gives you entitlement. All right. Look, tell us first, what part of Ukraine did your family come from? So my family was from Kiev, actually the capital. And uh, we left just before Alex and I turned four. That was 1979. And we've been here for going on 44 glorious years. And you've been good patriots during that time. You both entered the military. You've both been in the service of national security, and we're glad you're here. Let's talk for a little bit about the situation in terms of managing war crimes in Ukraine. Now, you've been in and out of Ukraine about nine times in the last, what, four months? Um, Actually, since June of last year, I'm losing track whether it's nine or 10 times. So probably four times maybe going on this year. And why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about, first of all, what you're doing there? Sure. So I am a expert consultant and subject matter expert with the Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group. The Atrocity Crimes Advisory Group is the U.S. government program of record, along with coalition partners, the U.S. or U.K. and EU. We work directly with the Ukrainian Prosecutor General's Office to help them investigate and eventually prosecute war crimes. Okay. And I imagine you're seeing some pretty concrete evidence of war crimes. Why don't you describe 
your sort of firsthand experience there, what you're seeing on the ground? We interact with prosecutors and leadership quite often, but we also go out to different sites. So for instance, I've been to Bucha or Pien Hastamala, the well-known war crime sites in the Kiev region. I've also been out to Kharkiv, the second largest city, which is very close to the, the Russian border. There is a apartment block complex called Saltivka. It's on the northern side of the city, so closest to Russia. It used to be home to 400,000 residents, so just massive apartment blocks. And it was completely deserted when I was there. Many of the buildings were bombed, artillery strikes. So, I mean, a great example of indiscriminate attack on, on civilian objects. I've been out to strikes on infrastructure sites, both in Kharkiv Oblast and also in Kiev. And so also pretty good examples of strikes or attempted strikes on infrastructure supporting civilians. At best, an argument that it's dual use, but frankly, based on the evidence I've seen, it's civilian in nature. So those are the types of activities that I've personally or sites that I've personally visited. But of course, there's many more other examples out there. There's examples of uh, Russians executing Ukrainian POWs. There are a few famous cases. There's famous cases of Russians uh, maiming that castration of Ukrainian POWs. There are cases of conflict-related sexual violence, basically the entire gambit of what you would consider war crimes. And the U.S. government has actually gone as far as calling these crimes against humanity which is an even more serious breach of international criminal law. That's uh, th that's sickening to hear. It's extremely upsetting. And I, I think it's interesting to hear you describe what we've been talking about in terms of these decimation of these apartment buildings uh, over at this point, over 160,000 of them. They're very different, I think, from apartment buildings Americans imagine. These are multi-bedroom apartments where entire families live and where most Ukrainians live their lives. Is that right? Yeah, so not too different from what you might see in Chicago or New York, as far as like <laughs> big apartment blocks, but maybe different than many other cities where they're not hundreds of units, they're dozens of units. So these these are 15, 20 stories each with hundreds of apartments, and there are dozens of them in these sort of living communities or residential communities, you know, close enough to town where people get to work pretty easily. Let's talk a little bit about some of the challenges that the Ukrainians are facing right now. They have a legal system that probably never anticipated this day. So why don't we talk about what happens? You're a Ukrainian prosecutor and you get some sort of a tip about a war crime. What do you do next and what do you have to do next? Sure. So I'm not a Ukrainian lawyer, but to the extent that I've spent a fair amount of time with Ukrainian prosecutors, I think I have a good sense. They re receive a tip or a complaint. And so there are a couple of different ways a case can open. They're required by Ukrainian law to open a case and then start an investigation. So whereas in the U.S., there's prosecutorial discretion, a prosecutor can decide whether or not to open a case, whether to pursue prosecution. That's not possible in Ukraine. So these 77,000 cases all generated from a complaint of some sort, could be either discrete cases or there could be potentially some duplication. There could be a complaint from a witness and also evidence of a crime at a site. So there's going to be have to be some sort of deconfliction process. But at that point, the system is also bifurcated. And part of this is sort of a, a remnant of Soviet times. It used to be that the prosecutor could investigate and prosecute cases. 
you know, that was dangerous. So they've bifurcated the system where the police or the special security services investigate, and then they transmit the case to the prosecutors for prosecution. So it now more reflects the U.S. system where, for example, a federal agency staffed by 1811 investigators would refer a case. So they're trying to create that situation. Yes, that is a frightening thought with a prosecutor having that level of control. So that sounds like a welcome change. Let's go on, though. So they get these tips. You mentioned 77,000 cases. I know at the time uh, The Economist published last week, speaking with one of your colleagues, that reporter indicated that there were at that time roughly 70,000. But it sounds like that's how many more tips you get in a very short period of time. That's true. So, I mean, the Ukrainians classify some of these cases as uh, national security cases. So they could be war crimes cases, but they could also include, and the Ukrainians have several thousand cases open on, on collaborators. So depending on, on what number you're looking at, whether it's sort of clean war crimes or their entire gambit of national security cases related to the war, the number could be a little bit higher. So I th- the, the ballpark is, I think, somewhere in the 70, 74, 77,000. That's a lot, especially in a short period of time and in a country that's basically being decimated. All of its institutions are being bombed into almost non-existence. But let's talk for a second about another claim that is made, and that is that some of the soldiers responsible for this are actually being tried in absentia. Is there a reason based on what you've seen why they need to do that? Is that a process concern that they have? They don't want to lose jurisdiction. What do you think is behind that? Because obviously we have in the United States a constitutional right to confront and cross-examine witnesses. And so this is a very different legal dynamic than what you and I would be accustomed to seeing. You know, there is a imperative from the Ukrainian public. So one of the things you'll hear quite often is, I mean, the Ukrainians certainly are asking for weapons because they want to win this war. But the next thing they'll ask for is accountability. So the population is clamoring for accountability. There's been a great deal of suffering. The prosecutors are responsive to that. And part of it is, frankly, just the situation where the Ukrainians are trying some cases where they have captured POWs that have been accused of of crimes. And then they have cases where they have identified and accused, but they don't have them in custody. And so they're proceeding with those cases. And I will say, I tried as a as an army prosecutor, I tried a case in absentia. It was a little bit different because the accused absconded after arraignment, and you're allowed to do that after arraignment. So we, we do have some limited ability to try a case in absentia, even in the U.S., well, that's a okay. So if a guy, is, that's a pretty rare situation in which a guy absconds. I've seen it. I've seen a guy do that in the middle of trial, just sort of disappear. So uh, the other thing that is coming forth from some of the the discourse about what's happening over there is that there are a lot of advisors. There are a lot of people with tremendous experience and talent but they may not be coordinating all of their efforts together. And one of the concerns that I have heard from people who have served on war crimes tribunals, particularly the one after Yugoslavia, what they have said is that, you know, people pick up evidence everywhere, chain of custody becomes very sort of attenuated in some instances. How is this being managed? So let me just actually back up a little bit, because the point you raised previously about the trials in absentia is an important point. For instance, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, does not try cases in absentia. 
So that's why there's a, a warrant out for Vladimir Putin's arrest, and that case won't proceed. I mean, there, the investigation will proceed, but the, there will be no trial in absentia. Every, Let's hope the, they keep good records and preserve those files. Yes, they they will. <laughs> I have no doubt they are. But I mean, the Ukrainians also have representation for the accused. So a, a number of the due process concerns, if addressed appropriately, can be addressed in a manner that will meet international standards and international scrutiny. You know, the other thing is we shouldn't be superimposing our legal system necessarily on the Ukrainians or anybody else. So there are different varieties of this. The Ukrainians are a code-based system. All right. With that, to your question about <laughs> chain of custody and how so this coordination, manage. chain of custody and coordination. Yeah, absolutely. So with 77,000 cases, you might not be surprised that the Ukrainians are not turning away any offers of assistance. And there are many of NGOs that are involved in documenting cases. There are also a number of governments that are involved in different aspects of investigation and witness interviews and such. That is ultimately will need to be coordinated. But I think the most important thing that the Ukrainians can do now is, frankly, investigate and gather the evidence. Some of this deconfliction can occur on the back end before a trial occurs. But if if you miss the opportunity to gather evidence, then that will never become, you know, it won't be another opportunity to do that. So it's fleeting. As far as chain of custody can be a problem. If you think about how some a scenario can play out, the Ukrainians are conducting a counteroffensive, they're liberating territory. Their soldiers are the first ones, obviously, that are going to enter an area that could be a war crime site. Some evidence may be destroyed in the actual attack, in the actual operations. Some of it could be destroyed, frankly, from soldiers not paying attention or not safeguarding it. So you have issues like that, but it's it's an active battlefield. So that's just a, a, something that you have to train for, the Ukrainians have to train for and be prepared to address that. I've observed how they actually conduct investigations and chain of custody on site. For instance, I mentioned that I'd visited infrastructure attack. The investigators were on site. They're conducting video interviews. They were conducting aerial surveillance with drones to get a sort of a map out of what the location looks like. They were collecting fragments from the Russian missile that hit the site. Wow. So when there is an opportunity to conduct this to a standard, the Ukrainians, from my observation, have done it quite well. But there are also going to be times when there are active operations where that's not going to go quite so well. And you're going to have to reconstruct chain of custody. In the U.S., these issues with the chain of custody, they usually go to weight rather than admissibility. And so I think they're, the Ukrainians are going to have to address it in a similar manner. Yeah, it makes sense. And battlefield artifacts are often very helpful and, and self-identifying in some way. It's pretty clear what it is. They'll have certain markings. There are certain things that only the Russians would be deploying and so on. And it's kind of interesting, this attack on infrastructure, which when you talk about infrastructure, I think a lot of people are probably listening to this and thinking water supply, power supply station, the things that are like critical infrastructure as we've defined it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Code in 2339D, which talks about economic system, banking, all these things are considered critical infrastructure because we can't run a society without it. Is that what you're talking about? So I'm talking really more physical infrastructure. I'm talking about water, power, sewer. 
type facilities, especially in the winter. The Russians initiated a campaign in early October with sort of massive strikes around the country on these infrastructure targets that I mentioned. Frankly, it turned out there was they were largely ineffective for a number of different reasons. First of all, the Ukrainians shot down 80% of what the Russians fired. So only 20% got through. And so I think when wow. you at building a case like this and you want to kind of demonstrate intent, it's important not only to look at the 20% that got through, but the 80 other 80% that didn't get through to demonstrate right. what the Russians were actually trying to do, which frankly was to starve or freeze the population. So, which they have a history of doing in Ukraine. Exactly. Holodomir is a little bit not not in, in active combat, but certainly this was for uh, folks that monitor the situation. It seemed very obvious that this is what the Russians were after. And frankly, there were some public statements by some officials and propagandists that this is what they were after. Other thing the Russians had going against them is that this happened to be a fairly mild winter by Russian Ukrainian standards. So mm-hmm. I guess you can say that even God was is against the Russians. So either that or it's climate change. <laughs> yes. Yes. It, we it, can it, only hope for the former, right? Absolutely. The Ukrainians weathered the assault quite well. I was there on several occasions where there were power outages and some of them were extended in, in parts of the country, but Overall, uh, the Ukrainians were able to not only shoot down a number of the incoming missiles, but also respond with generators and repairs. They weathered it, and the Russians obviously shifted off that campaign uh, a few weeks ago. Let's talk for a second about sort of the reality of some of these prosecutions. You've mentioned that with respect to the ICC, they have to have the body in front of them before they can proceed. They can charge but they can't proceed uh, to trial absent the individual being in the courtroom. And they have certain rules regarding whether that person is present. It seems very unlikely that even when this conflict winds down, that the Ukrainians will ever get their hands on most of the people who have done this, the overwhelming majority of the individuals responsible for this. How does that play to sort of their day-to-day determination to continue to investigate these cases and ultimately seek justice. Yeah, so I, I'm not, I guess I'm a little bit more optimistic about accountability. In Germany, they were still trying cases related to World War II last year. There are cases that are going on in former Yugoslavia decades after that. So the situation in Russia, as it is now, the likelihood does not look great. You know, in a few years with Putin gone, potentially changes in the regime there. I'm not so sure that. Everybody that thinks they're sitting pretty now is going to be sitting sitting pretty a few years from now. There the are ultimate. reversals of fortune in history. That's true. Absolutely. And ultimately, there's this is part of sort of a web of accountability. So if you think about the Ukrainians, ultimately are going to have jurisdiction. They're going to try 90, 95 percent of these cases. There are going to be other cases in, in an international tribunal. The ICC is going to look to take cases and and some of the more high profile matters. And there are other countries that are looking potentially at universal jurisdiction. It's possible the U.S. might try a case given the change in law. So I think given the sort of emphasis on international criminal law and accountability, I don't think that necessarily there's going to be a wholesale escape from accountability. I will say the ones that are may escape criminal accountability, the, the Russians are very cynical in their behavior. So, for instance, the unit that was responsible for the Bucha massacres, the soldiers involved were all given orders of merit. 
and then sent to the front line into a meat grinder. So most of them are dead now. So they they died heroes in the in the Russian Federation, never to be held accountable, but according to plan by the leadership of the Russian Federation. Wow. Okay, that meat grinder may have been a little bit more of an image than I wanted to receive, but it does. Uh, today, there is a report that at least the Russians are finally admitting it. Over 100,000 Russians have been killed in this conflict, and it's very difficult to believe that mothers in Russia are going to tolerate this over any kind of long period. I do wonder, because I want to ask you to help me understand something that you may not have an explanation for, but many of us sat by with dismay when Vladimir Putin referred to the Ukrainians as Nazis, considering the fact that uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is Jewish. This seemed the most bizarre statement ever out of Russia, although he says, you know, an incredible number of harebrained things on any given day. How do you think that kind of thing is received? I mean, it's obviously intending to conjure images within Mother Russia of, you know, the siege of Leningrad or whatever it is that is going through. He's trying to plant in the minds of Russians. I know right now you're probably almost about to laugh at the absurdity of such a sick statement. But how did that play? Well, first of all, Alyssa, you, you should be careful because you're going to get yourself banned from going into Russia and end up on a sanctions list talking about Putin the way you have. But uh, <laughs> I would congratulate you, though. It's not on it, my list. Yes. yes. You know, look, uh, I had both of my grandfathers fought in the Red Army in World War II and were killed on the Eastern Front fighting the Nazis. And so the Nazis in Nazi Germany conjures sort of visceral responses from Russians, former Soviet republics. And so that's an obvious reason why he's using that. But they're also defining Nazism in in such a way as to, it resembles more Russian behavior than anything, because they're claiming Nazism is being non-accepting or attacking Russians, Russian speakers in Ukraine. They've taken the term Nazi and defined it in, in their own way. And okay, so Russian speakers order. would be the, the legacy of people, children and, and grandchildren of people who were forced to speak Russian and not Ukrainian during Stalinification. Okay. Well, some of that, and you know, oddly enough, the areas that are suffering the most, Kharkiv, the Donbass, Donetsk, and Luhansk, uh, uh, Oblast, Zaporizhia, Kherson, those are the areas that were predominantly Russian-speaking in the past anyway. It's the people that have borne the brunt of this war. The people that Putin is, is claiming to want to protect are the ones that he's injuring the most. It's an interesting fact. So tell us what you predict based on these uh, with respect to the criminal cases and sort of how things will coordinate and map out in terms of any justice actions. Let's confine this to, let's say, the next 12 months. So look, the Ukrainians' best chance at accountability is victory in the war. So that's how they'll be able to liberate territory, how they'll be able to gather evidence of war crimes. Specifically to criminal accountability, I would anticipate that the Ukrainians will gather evidence from the liberated areas. The number of cases and the number of victims, civilian victims, will grow tremendously when areas are liberated, especially if you if they can get to Mariupol. There, there could be tens of thousands of victims there alone. They will continue to investigate those cases with the help of their allies and partners across the the world. They will slowly develop a strategy 
and start to prosecute. A lot of it depends on what happens in the Russian regime, as I as I clearly indicated. I don't anticipate that the Ukrainians will end up prosecuting tens of thousands of, of Russians in absentia, but they're going to continue to investigate and prosecute the most high profile cases. The ICC and other bodies are going to have a role in that as well. Well, and they probably already have because we only know about what's been made public. And there may be multiple hundreds. We don't know how many indictments out of the ICC. Putin's response to that was he was going to open an investigation himself. Who's going to take that on? He really cared. <laughs> All right. Well, it's really good to see you. Be safe over there. Protect that evidence because I think uh, it would be terrible to see wherever evidence is being stored. And I hope it's in a very safe place or maybe even outside the country that it remains available to prosecutors who seek to enforce the rule of law in Ukraine. Absolutely. That in Ukraine, we also need that around the world to dissuade other would-be aggressors. So what happens in Ukraine has an enormous impact on the behavior of other autocrats and would-be empires. Well, you know, right now they're all hanging out together. They formed the Club of Autocrats. You know, I don't know if it's like one of those fancy men's clubs that were established in the 1920s or whatever, but they're all hanging out together. They like to throw back a few and yuck it up. So hopefully that fun will come to an end in in the reasonably near future. All right. Good seeing you. Thanks for coming in. And listeners, thanks for listening to NSLT. You can send us feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. Or you can also send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Potit, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Burkham is our now married editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. And my other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thank you for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.